Hello everybody, my name is Anne Teato and welcome to the Psychic Matters podcast episode number 27. In this episode, I am talking to psychic medium Brian Bowles about the importance of honouring our grief, be it through a bereavement or a relationship that has been lost to you. Brian's gentle and compassionate nature, coupled with his many years of experience working in hospice and his incredible work as a psychic medium, means that he is extremely well-placed to help you to come to terms with loss and to honour the process of letting go. Before I begin, just a quick announcement. I have a wonderful two-day workshop coming up on Saturday the 27th of February and Saturday the 6th of March 2021. It's a five-hour workshop per day, so that's 10 hours altogether. UK time zone 3 to 8 p.m., so that's, I think, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. EST. It's called the Theatre of Mediumship. I have drawn upon my extensive knowledge as a professional working actress to craft this unique two-day workshop. It promises to be a lot of fun, but do be prepared if you sign up. It's going to be a lot of hard work. The two workshops take place on Zoom and they will give you all the tools necessary to bring any dialogue with Spirit World Alive. It will be looking at your presentation skills and helping you to craft a good opening and closing for both your platform and one-to-one work is suitable for intermediate to advanced students. An actor's job is to become the character they're playing and to host a conversation between the playwright and the audience showing that the person they're portraying is a real-life, three-dimensional, living, breathing human being. And the way an actor does this is by studying a character's personality and backstory. Because every individual has a distinctive character and it's formed by a combination of qualities. A personality is formed and affected by somebody's own values and those imposed upon them from their family, their environment, their culture and the timeline of existence, so whatever century you're born into. Attitudes, personal memories, social relationships, habits and skills, they all help to form the personality of a human being. And a good actor can bring a character to life and make them 100% believable to the audience, whether it be on stage, TV and film or on radio. Now, a medium's job is to blend closely with a spirit person and host a conversation between that spirit person and the audience or recipient, showing that those who live in the spirit world are real people who are still very much alive and vibrant and who can still share their personality, their attitudes, their personal memories, their habits and skills. And mediums do this by blending with a spirit person and gradually becoming more and more aware of their personality and their backstory. Unlike actors who have a full grasp of the character they're playing before the play or filming begins, a medium has no such access to any backstory or knowledge of the spirit person before they begin work. A good medium works in the moment, placing full trust 
in the spirit world and opening up their awareness to receive and allow information from the spirit world to touch the mind, holding an internal conversation with their spirit contact whilst also relaying what has been given by spirit to the recipient. As mediums, you know, we have the ability to pick up information from anywhere along a fellow soul's timeline, from the life they lived on earth and from the life they are living now in the spirit realm. Well, we all know this, but sometimes when we're demonstrating mediumship or we're giving a one-to-one reading, we can sometimes feel blank or we find ourselves just waiting for fresh information to touch our mind. And we're not always 100% sure what sort of evidence is available to us. So that can affect our confidence and make us unsure and hesitant and doubtful. So this workshop or both workshops through mini tutorials, exercises and breakout groups, you will have an opportunity to work with other students from across the globe and we will all work together to transform our mediumship through fully realising the three dimensional attributes of our spirit communicator and thus as mediums we strive to become better ambassadors for the spirit world. To book the workshop, please head to my website, anteata.com, A-N-N-T-H-E-A-T-O.com, and you can either look for online events or go to anteata.com slash events slash the dash theatre dash of dash mediumship. And you will find all details how to book there. I have had some fantastic testimonials from other students in case you're thinking, oh, I wonder what kind of teacher she is. I've just dug out some testimonials from the depths of my computer. So thank you very much to uh, the students who've written these. Kathy M. Anne is an amazing teacher. She puts you at ease immediately. Her energy and passion is contagious. Thank you, Kathy. Thomas M., a positive, encouraging and enlightening course, beautifully taught with passion. Thank you very much, Thomas. And Sushma. I have taken many different spiritual classes, but I have to say this class was by far one of my favourites. Yay! (laughs) Anne is a phenomenal teacher. She really made me think outside the box and challenged myself with my current skill set. I really valued her insight as to how we can continuously improve and strengthen our talent. So thank you very much, Sushma, for those kind words. And finally, from Stacey. Anne's class was a step... Oh, I'll say it again. Anne's class was a stellar learning experience. She is a gifted teacher with a warm and encouraging manner, and she's extremely well-versed and well-experienced in the subject matter. Thanks to her guidance and the firm find it. I can't speak today. Thanks to her guidance and the firm foundation her class provided, I feel much more confident and capable in offering psychic readings. I've already signed up for her next class and would urge you to do the same. Thank you so much to all my former students for writing such wonderful words. And may I invite you to join me in the theatre of mediumship coming up very soon. If you're listening to this podcast and those dates have already passed, don't worry. Just email me, Anne at anteata.com and let me know that you would like to do that programme and I can offer it again. No problem. Now then to this episode, honouring grief, befriending death. So I'm in the studio today with the magnificent Brian Bowles. Brian, welcome to Psychic Matters. 
Thank you for having me. And this is a lot of fun. I'm excited to be here. So what I'm really passionate about these days, actually, Anne, and it's going to sound weird, but I've got one of my dearest friends is dying from cancer as we speak. She was just given into hospice and she just had a port put into her belly because of the peritonitis from her liver cancer. And I just like to talk about how in, not just in mediumship, but just in life, how there's a point at which our life can change when we befriend death. And I think that's what mediumship is, uh, for me, has been the biggest lesson. Uh, having come out as a gay man during the AIDS crisis and having stood on a lawn in Washington, D.C. and looked at all of the AIDS quilts um, displayed in 1992, it seems to me like when I came out, you know, I came out to disco music and hot guys wearing, you know, um, uh, gosh, this one fellow that I dated, he was such a cutie. This Italian fellow that wore a Mighty Mouse t-shirt and I thought he was he was so dreamy. I was, And I was like, what are you even doing with me? But that's fine. So we, we dated for a bit. But I just remember all of that going on, all that excitement, all that fun and drag queens that were just gorgeous. And I just wanted to like bow at their heels and be like, I'm not cool like you. And, you know, because drag queens basically raised me when I was 15 and came out of the gay bars. And that's not a joke. They were like a family for me in a big way. So I had all of that going on. And then in the other, the other hand that you're offered is death because the whole AIDS crisis is happening. And all these people that you're meeting are secretly dying. And all of a sudden, Jimmy doesn't appear at the, the clubs anymore. And then four weeks later, we find out Jimmy died. And it, it became this really bizarre process of going to memorial services or doing, you know, random memorial services at the gay clubs. Sometimes a memorial service was, I mean, just to be direct with you, was to drop acid and go to a, a dance club. You know, it wasn't fancy. It wasn't, uh, you know, nobody was um, running around. There were, there were no priests involved in any of this. But it was certainly a, f a version of a memorial service. And um, and I don't want to make myself sound cooler than I am because there's a danger in that because I was never really all that into drugs or being that fancy or cool. But for some reason, I had some really cool people that were friends of mine. And I was like, I want to be cool like you. So that's kind of, I think that's, I'm 49. And I think that's how I felt my whole life because <laughs> I have these really cool people around me. But I think in mediumship, I think we're asked to get to know death. Don't you think, Ian? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Befriend death was the phrase that you used just a few yes. moments ago. How easy do you think it is to befriend death? Well, I, I had a situation where I meditated on this. Um, and my version of meditation is not, I'm an ADHD person. So I'm like, I don't relate to people when they talk about, I meditate and I lost all my thoughts and I connected with the underworld. I'm like, what is that like? I don't, I don't even know what that's like. So I still have all the chatter and stuff, but I get in the bathtub and um, I play soft music and Anyway, so one time I asked um, my guide, Joanne, I said, I'd like to talk to you about death. And she said, well, why don't you meet someone that works with death? I said, okay, what, uh, what's that? She goes, well, just trust me, Brian. Don't be such a drama queen. You can meet her. So my guide's very direct. You know, it's not, she's not walking around with wings and like, that's not Joanne. She's just really direct. I really love her dearly. I came to know Joanne as my guide when I started in the work. Um, and I didn't really believe in all this, as I mentioned to you. But so I started to trust that this uh, guide was real. And she told me I was Jewish. And at that time, I didn't know that I was Jewish. I found out I was Jewish six years later at dinner with my uncle. So she'd been pretty incredibly accurate about my family and things like that. It just kind of blew me away. But anyway, um, I'm sitting in the bathtub as I do and <laughs> with all my salt and all that stuff. And uh, that's where I kind of, that's really where I meditate. She said, would you like to meet someone who works in the world of death? I said, sure. So I get this woman that comes in and her name's Izzy and she's Latina. She's a Latina woman. And She's got her jean jacket on and she's got, 
you know, she's probably in her late, like her mid fifties and her hair's uh, in feather and she's just really fun. She has glasses and, and she talked to me about how she greets people um, when they die and her role in that and all of that. And I'm, and by the way, I'm not suggesting that I'm right about this or this is some belief system. It's just, it's just a goofy way that I think my soul stories death. I don't think it's how it, it I'm not trying to say that this is how it happens or any of that other nonsense. I just find that for me, I, I make meaning through story. So I think my guide uses story to help me make meaning of things. So I'm not asserting that this is true or what have you. It may be true. It may not. I don't care. Frankly, it doesn't really matter. But through that connection, um, I've really been able to ask questions about death that I've always wanted to know. And I think it's um, I think it's the willingness to be curious that can shift our discomfort with death. Even in mediumship, I think there's an assumption that somehow because we're mediums and we do that, we have this ability of mediumship that somehow because of that, that we're wise about all spiritual matters. And I, and I think that's um, unfair and unkind to ourselves, actually, because we're in the river with everyone else, right? And do you, mm. do you find that to be true for you too, Ian? Mm, definitely. Yeah, definitely. We're not built like tanks where we don't have feelings or we, we know exactly how to deal with every situation. You talk there about your beautiful friend who's who's very, very sick with cancer at the moment. And, you know, how do you, just because you're a medium doesn't mean you're immune to feeling sadness and loss when you're faced with a situation like that. It's very, very difficult. I think the beautiful thing of that is that, you know, in hospice, when I started in hospice and I ended up doing hospice work completely on accident. What what did you do in a hospice? What, What was your job there? Family therapist. All right. Okay. My internship was supposed to be in another clinical setting. It was actually supposed to be an after-school program, but the university that I, where I was attending asked me to go to this interview with Denver Hospice. They were trying to strike up a relationship with, with Denver Hospice for their uh, future intern. And so I went to the interview and, and submitted my paperwork and, and met with, met with their team. It was supposed to be an hour long interview. And I was there for three and a half hours. And I just fell in love with their team such beautiful people. And I wound up doing my internship there. And then I wound up really defining myself clinically through the door of grief and loss. And what they say in hospice, that it's a quote by Alan Wolfelt, and I love it dearly. He says, our grief never tells us what's wrong with us. It only tells us what's right with us. It tells us that we love. That's a beautiful quote. Because I, I think often our vulnerability, we're taught to be ashamed of our vulnerability, mm. aren't we? in our world. Um, yes, we are. And I think we, we somehow perceive um, cynicism as a higher form of intellect. We, yes. we kind of make cynicism a form of intelligence. And, and cynicism to me is just a, a witty way of, of covering up your hurt. And so in hospice, we don't view someone's hurt or their grief as a malady to fix. We see it as a reflection of their capacity to love. So it's, we're not trying to fix anybody we're trying to honor, we're, we're really creating space to honor their grief because grief is, is the journey that's only there for those who take the risk to love. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, how are you, obviously through your work, you've dealt with a lot of families who have lost their loved ones, simply put, and you're about to face the loss of another dear friend. How do you prepare for that yourself? You know, I've never, I've never really acknowledged how I do that. I don't know if that I, you know, we have a, a dog that had been with us for, you know, a good 12 years and Lily was very, very dear to me and John. And we knew she was dying. She had heart disease and um, we knew she, when we knew when it was getting really serious. I think what we do is we, 
the memories of that relationship start to come and you start to you start to recognize just how lucky you were that that person chose you as a friend and we actually met uh doing uh, a musical together working and then we did godspell together which is actually kind of funny because my poor husband had to deal with me because i i played the jesus character and so there's nothing worse than being married to somebody who's a medium and who thinks he's jesus that's that's fun he's <laughs> like yeah, hilarious you still need to do to the do the dishes. Like the dishes are still waiting for you. Yeah. Okay. Great one. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a very humbling experience. This is actually before I even knew about mediumship. This is oh, this is actually many years ago, twenty years ago. Hoofta. But that's uh, that's how I met Jane, um, this lovely, lovely friend. And um, so you start to these memories start to come to you, and they start to they start to form the bond. They start to form the story. I think actually, they start to you start to recognize how the way these people have loved you has softened you and made your heart, uh, made your heart more available to the world. You know, she, she doesn't ask for anything from this world. She only offers and she gives of herself so freely without any expectation of anything in return, but there's not an ounce of martyr in that in any way. There's a, it's a beautiful way. She just smiles at life and She's always had more to offer this world than she's ever had to take from it. So that's been interesting, isn't it? To you look around you and you think, well, how did I get, a, how was I lucky enough to have a friend like this? Because I was a really self-centered person when she and I met. So you, I think in some ways what death offers us is a chance to, and it may seem narcissistic, but I don't believe it is actually. I think it's a good opportunity to think about how someone's way of loving you has changed you. And think about the person you were before you met that person. And I believe it's a, if it's a family member, you know, I, I would, I'm a big believer that our family members are our greatest teachers because we don't have a choice but to love them. <laughs> it's like spirits like here, enjoy, love these people that you would never want to have dinner with. Enjoy, They're, aren't they great? But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a peace that comes from loving our family members that um, may not return the love, especially as a gay person. I think there's a unique way we get to love our families. And I don't feel like a victim of that anymore. I used to feel so sorry for myself about all that, but now I really don't. I feel like um, it's really, it's really a, a great lesson, isn't it? We get to have peace in our life because the minute that you love somebody, you don't need anything from them. They can't hurt you. We can tell all the stories about how someone's hurt us 5,000 times. And I think death also brings up the hurt in a relationship. Um, but the minute that we decide to love that person, they can't hurt us. Because we, um, we almost feel them as a child in a way where we don't ask them to be anything other than who they are. We just have an open heart for them. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. And so what you're saying is your, so your family, are you saying your family rejected you because you were homosexual or? Yes. Right. Okay. I'm sorry about that. That's, that's very sad. Well, it was the time too. I mean, it's more complicated. It wasn't, it's hard to explain. Um, I was not um, invited. I was invited to my brother's wedding, but my partner, John, was not allowed to come. He was not, he was uninvited. And I said, well, I can't just, I can't honor your love by dishonoring mine. I'm not going to be going into a situation where my, my, my beloved is not welcome. I'm not, I'm not going to be doing that. And so that became the rift and we haven't really connected um, since. And I've tried to reach out to him and, and forge that bond again with him. But you also recognize there's a point at which the, the relationship becomes defined by the separation rather than by the love. 
And that's okay too. I've kind of come to accept that. And I really love him. It's really fascinating, isn't it, in that way? And my my mom and dad, you know, they, they were, my dad's a Catholic deacon and, and my mother died about two and a half years ago. And I think for them, it was, I told them when I was 15, you know, I'm, during, a, during a commercial break, during the show Growing Pains, <laughs> I just think my poor parents, they're like, what Amazing. do we do with this weird child? But I just kind of knew I was not, I, I didn't get to be confused about being gay. It was like really obvious. I was like, okay, I'm not really confused about all this. But I, I think also your, your mom and dad have a dream for who you're going to be. And that dream dies when, they, when you let them know that you're gay you know, their idea of who they, who they believed you to be and the dream they had for you changes. And I think um, they, you know, I've learned to, I've learned to really believe that we can love our parents enough to give them the time to grieve that and let them embrace the new version of you. And really my mom and dad have done that to some degree during my life, I would say, you know, but I actually think for me, more importantly, is that I embrace the parents that I have in the place they are with those issues. Because, you know, even when my mother died, my dad asked my, asked, I wrote the obituary and I met my dad at the mortuary. And my dad asked me to take John's name out of the, out of the obituary. Cause in the obituary, you list the family members and you list who's the wife is and who the child, that's kind of a typical American custom. And, and John is your partner. Yeah. John is my husband. Yeah. Your We've husband. been together for, you know, gosh, 25 years. So right, yeah. He, and this, you know, it was just two years ago, two and a half years ago, but he asked me to take John's name out of the obituary. And I, you know, at that point I, I wasn't going to make it a gay rights movement moment. You know, that's not the right time. My mom had mm. died. His wife had died. You know, my dad's mm. wife had died. I, yes. I get the significance of that actually. And I got in that moment. It really didn't need to be all about my hurt at that time. It really didn't. And it shouldn't have been. And I don't think it really had, I think it had more to do with the public perception because my dad's a Catholic deacon and what have you. I started to really understand the why of that. But it was also awkward for me after so many years that he would need to have John's name taken out of the obituary. It's such a weird thing to me. But I also think that's what death, death, death forces us to tell the truth about the relationships we're in. You know, there's too many aspects of death that require us to tell the truth. Does that make sense, Ian? Yeah, it does make sense. It's very interesting listening to you talking about this because I was rejected also by my parents for different reasons. I was rejected by my parents because I had two children. Well, first of all, I had one child out of wedlock, so that was bad enough. And then I went and had a second child by another man out of wedlock. And they couldn't cope with it. They just couldn't cope with it. So they couldn't talk to me. They they disowned me. They they re-owned me <laughs> a little bit further down the line. But that level of rejection, and it was interesting. I spoke to my mum. She's also a Catholic. She's old now, 87. So she was born, you know, in, the, in 1933 and just has a very strong way of looking at the world and that's what keeps her safe by looking at the world. These are the rules and these are the boundaries and this is how I live. And you should live like this too. I guess there's a fear of living outside of the rules. But her dreams for me died when these things happened. For me, that was difficult for other multitude of reasons. But um, she said to me, she's Irish. She said to me, 
I feel as if I've knitted this beautiful jumper and somebody's come along and destroyed all my stitches. Isn't that funny? Like that's, that's, she had such a great plan for me and I had undone her beautiful knitted plan. So yeah, there's a sadness there, but once, like you say, you you have to work through the process of why they acted like they acted. And all you can do is love that person because they can't help where they're from. She can't help how she was born in that era with those opinions and those and and um her rules and regulations. That's what she knows. So you have to honor the person. She's got beautiful qualities, as I'm sure your mum and dad do too. Otherwise, they couldn't possibly have brought you up the way they have as such a beautiful, loving person. So everybody's got wonderful qualities. We all have our dark side. And loving that person is the best. Love is always the way forward, isn't it? Yes. And I, and I, but I love what you're, I'm so appreciative that you shared that with me because. I wonder about this a lot. You know, when you're in mediumship classes, you're around, I always feel like I'm around some of the most courageous people I've ever met. These are people that have been deeply hurt by this world, and yet they're there in that class to figure out how to love that world. Yeah. You think about that, that's really magnanimous, isn't it? It's really something profound. They've been deeply hurt by this world, and they're in that class to learn how to open their heart to love this world. That's really something. Yeah, that really is something. And you think of the wound that you experienced, the wound I experienced, they're, they're, they have different stories and the wallpaper is different, isn't it? But it's not different. It's the same. And I wonder if that rejection for me became the permission that I would have needed to then embrace mediumship. Yes, exactly. And it's funny, isn't it? I think about I've never experienced and will never now experience somebody welcoming my child into the world. I'll never have that. Both fathers left as well, by the way. <laughs> so, um, so there was never that experience for me. I will never have that where a child was warmly welcomed. It was always a difficulty and a, and a trouble. I think what I'm trying to say is we have all this love inside of us. And sometimes we have all these gifts and abilities, not just in mediumship or psychic ability, but you know, maybe we're good mechanics or we're good at cutting hair or something. And sometimes we don't always get the opportunity in the lifetime here that we lead to fully realize our own unique potential. So your beautiful friend, Jane, who's dying way before she should be dying, she probably hasn't had the opportunity to fully express herself here in the world. And there's a sadness in a way that you think, oh, she's never going to be able to do this, this, and this. But with our knowledge of the spirit world, we know that you can go on and and still do all of those things in the spirit world. So it doesn't stop just because our physical bodies, you know, conked out. Um, our spirit will still go on and do all those wonderful things and more. So that there's an excitement there about going to the spirit world. I, I really I love what you're saying. You know, for me, I think what's miraculous to me about someone like uh, someone like my friend Jane is that I don't think she would feel that way. You know, she is that person that. Whatever the experience is, it was perfect. When I meet people like her, I'm always like, who are you? <laughs> like, what strange planet did you come from? Because, um, you know, I think we, I think death also offers us this great gift, you know, because I don't think Jane thinks about her life in terms of accomplishment. And I think death teaches us to think about the story of her life differently. 
you know, I think oftentimes we are so obsessed with celebrity, aren't we? And we're so obsessed with the idea of accomplishment that you're, you know, I want to be someone I've proven that I am, oh, I have this many likes or this many, whatever. But I think death teaches us that all of that is not only temporary, but, but ultimately meaningless because, you know, you can have the beautiful ability of mediumship and be an incredibly disrespectful, um, narcissistic person. You know, that's why I'm a big believer that mediumship is an ability and not some offering from from God that's given to the, the great and holy, which is and that's a bunch of nonsense to me. I think mediumship is an ability that's teaching our soul what it needed to learn in this life. And I'm a big believer that part of that lesson is about authority. You know, if we use our mediumship to somehow believe that we are at the pulpit of life and we're meant to educate the the plebeians about, you know, the world, <laughs> the world, <laughs> the world in front of us. I think there's a real, first of all, that's nonsense, but I think mediumship is actually to me about companioning the suffering. It's the willingness to be so vulnerable that you're willing to companion with someone who's suffering. And in that process of being a companion to the suffering, I think we mediumship's so natural, isn't it? You know, the spirit just comes in. We make it complicated, we make it weird. I mean, some of the ways we teach mediumship are goofy to me, frankly. But I think at its core, mediumship is just an incredibly natural process of companioning. And I think um, if you're companioning with somebody, you're not concerned with whether you're above them or below them. Your souls are connected. There's no comparison. There's no accomplishment. There's no resume. There's no celebrity, is there? It's just really is that sense of companionship. Yeah, there's a great equality in it, which is really beautiful. Yeah. And you're right that this world is set up to <laughs> even as children you have to succeed you have to do this exam you have to get to this level and then you have to do this and if you get the car the fancy house then you will be seen to be better than those that don't and so there's this terrible structure that we're all born into which is completely alien to our soul that we're trying to fit into as a human being and i think some for some of those people that have achieved all those things there's a kind of an emptiness like there's still something missing even though they have all those uh, worldly things around them so i've rather enjoyed being an outlaw living in the woods because <laughs> uh you don't have to prove anything you don't have to i don't know you can meet people on their level it's much easier to find an equality with people yes. and not be so judged. So, and when did, when did, um, after you went, cause I'm, this is kind of relates to in letter to young medium. When I started to write that book, it was very authoritative. In fact, the first four kind of lessons that I wrote, I went back and revisited them. And actually my husband is the one that said it. he said, um, trust your stories. He said, don't tell me how to feel about your stories. He says, I don't need you to do my work. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was so helpful for me because I had like another two pages per every lesson with all this grandiose blah, blah, blah about what you're supposed to take from every single story, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, you know, I don't need you to really do that for me. Yeah. He said, good writers trust the readers and good writers that the readers have the experience they're, they're meant to have with the story. I absolutely agree. And that's the book that you've written, Letters to a Young Medium, 
is so beautiful in its description and you touch on so many commonalities of feeling that it really speaks to the soul and the heart. Maybe you could um, just explain to those people that are listening to this what that book is about and how you came to write it. Well, what I want to make sure I do here, though, is that I um, that this not be a plug for the book or any of that nonsense. It's more, um, I was trying to explain to myself, um, I was trying to capture for myself, kind of notice and name the lessons that were offered in mediumship that are not the lessons about connection, how we connect to spirit, how we get names, how we get all that stuff. I wanted to write a book or, and it was actually just an essay. I just wrote a kind of an, a quick essay. And I, I, two days I wrote an essay and I put it out there. And the lessons there were just stories um, about mediumship. And, you know, one was, um, one was the example that I gave of working when I was a special ed teacher before I became a, a family therapist. I was working with a child with um, significant special needs and he was not able to talk, but so I assumed he wasn't able to communicate. When I was asked to work with him one hour a day, he kept grabbing my my finger next to my uh, thumb. Is that the index finger? I'm not. I'm not yep. good. At, okay. He kept grabbing my index finger, and um, at the end of our time, he would grab that index finger, and I would I was doing this weird stuff where I would separate the fingers and see if he'd still grab the same finger, and he would still grab the same finger in. And what I was doing was I was actually reading a story to him on the computer and I was staying with him while they did range of motion um, exercises with him on the floor. And every time I would say goodbye to him at the end of our hour, he would crumple up his face and start to cry. He gets so upset and he grabbed my finger. And I told my, my director, I said, well, I don't think I'm meant to work with this kiddo. You know, I'm, I have my master's degree and I'm really good at supporting kids with science and math. And I'm, you know, I was very, very impressed with myself. And she said, well, I appreciate that you feel that way and you're going to be in there an hour a day. And so this kept going on and she said, well, and I kept complaining and she kept saying, you're staying. Well, there was a point at which she said, because um, I kept saying, you know, an aide could do this work that I would, it's just embarrassing, but I'll just tell the truth about myself at that time. And she said, well, I'm going to have you work with a speech language therapist because you're not, you're not trying uh, to learn how to communicate with this young man. So I'm going to have the speech language therapist come in and work with you. Basically, we're going to have the speech language therapist have extra time with you. And she was, you was, she'd said it that way on purpose to make sure that I understood that it was me. That was the barrier. And I felt really, un, I felt really misunderstood and all that stuff. It's so funny when I look back on it, but anyway, long story short, um, I go in and work with the speech language therapist and she's got this way of communicating with this one hand that he could ambulate and she had interacted like doing a circle on the palm and grabbing different fingers and all this kind of stuff. Well, at the end of the time, she grabbed his index finger and he grabbed her index finger. And I said, now what's that? I said, is that goodbye? And she said, no, that's I love you. That's I love you. That's the first thing the mother taught me when I started to work with him. Uh-huh. And he is um, fully receptive language with Mandarin, Chinese and English. So I made up an entire story about this young man that was completely untrue. I assumed that he was, I assumed his capacity to be at a completely different level. And I think that's a really interesting aspect of mediumship because we, it's just the presence. Yeah. It's not some trick or magical tool or magical anything really. Yeah. It's the presence we offer the soul that allows the story to be told through us. It's not, it's not something magical but it is something precious, isn't it? Yeah, it's really precious. So how did you become a medium? 
Well, I, I actually, I think I wrote about that. Um, I have a new book coming out called Halfway Through the Woods, and here I am plugging another pro- project that I'm working on, so forgive me, but based on the musical Into the Woods, hello, fellow actress. <laughs> hello. But, um, halfway Through the Woods. Um, but anyway, I basically, how I open up to mediumship, I'll give you the short version of that, is um, in my work in hospice, I started to have this experience of feeling the loved ones in the room with me. And I thought it was just a form of empathy, honestly. I thought it was just a kind of a form of empathizing with the clients that I was working with. And then they had a medium come to the Denver hospice office through Haran McConaughey, the mortuary. Um, Deb Shepard her, is her name. She's a really incredible medium. And she came in with her high heels, and she's just this gorgeous, beautiful woman. I just love her. And she did a, a talk and what have you with our with our staff there. And I walked away making fun of her. I thought, and I thought this is really unacceptable that we're suggesting this to our clients. We're professionals. I'm not going to be suggesting someone go talk to this woman that says she could talk to the dead. I'm not like I'm not doing that. And I was making fun of it the whole thing. And I had a colleague come into my office later, and she said. With tears in her eyes, she said, um, you really hurt my feelings today. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, well, you're, you've decided to discredit Deb when you don't know a thing about her work. She really helped me tremendously when my son died. And at the end of Deb's talk, that very first time I forgot to tell you this part, Deb came over to me and she said, you're a medium too. You need to be doing this professionally. And I was like, oh, the crazy lady thinks I should be doing mediumship. And I just was just a jerk about it, frankly. And that's when my friend Ellen, she came to my office and she said um, what she said. And then she, and then she said, you know, if you won't go meet with Deb for you, go meet with her for, for me. And I went and met with Deb and Deb changed my life in that hour. She brought through a dear friend of mine that died of AIDS. And then she had me, she had me um, connect with my own mediumship and that experience. And that was a life-changing experience. So that's how it all happened. I connect with one of her dogs actually that had died. And she went to her daughter's room and brought the picture of the very dog that I connected with. And so I, I was such a skeptic. And, and I, I'd still say my approach to mediumship is skeptical in some ways um, because I, I want to make sure that if I, um, if I say I can do something with a client that I have proven it to myself, that that's a real thing that I can offer. You know, Because there's a big piece for me about ensuring that I'm offering what I, what I know I can offer. Does that make sense um, to you? Oh, gosh. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Being in that integrity. that that um, That's right. Yeah. Knowing your competence. Yes. Um, knowing where you're at with all this because, um, you know, and that's the beauty of it. Mediumship is going to be informed by our, by our soul. You know, our soul is our instrument. I'm a big believer of this, that we have to tune that instrument. The strings of our instrument are require attention and time. We have to... If we have people in our life that we don't know how to love yet, or we haven't forgiven the father that hurt us or the mother that hurt us, until we forgive those people, it's going to be hard for us to be an instrument for the mother and spirit that needs to complete with the pain with their daughter or with their, with their son. You know, I feel like we have part of the requirement of our work to do it well is to tune our instrument all the time to keep growing, to keep softening to the lessons that um, others have offered us. Yeah, and I think... I think you're right to keep softening is a really good description because it's not easy to forgive a lot of things that happen to us while we're here and we have to uh, work hard at letting go of things and realise that it's not important. It's that letting go and that softening that is a really good phrase to use actually, Brian. 
Well, Anne, I think when we become the love we we're seeking, if we can learn to become the love that, uh, so in other words, when I was hurt by my mother, if you can become the love of the, of the mother that you desperately wanted, somehow that heals us, I think. You know, it's a fascinating thing when you can learn to love the mother in the way that you wish that she would have loved you, that somehow we heal. Yeah. I don't know how that works, but it seems to work. Yeah. And you do have to keep looking at things from somebody else's perspective. Yes. I remember when I was a young child, I don't know how old I was, maybe maybe five or six. And I'd gone into hospital and I'd had my adenoids removed from my throat. Um, I think I used to get swollen throat or something when I was little. And I remember the day my father came to collect me from the hospital and he took me out of hospital in my little nightdress with a teddy bear and wrapped me in a blanket. And I remember to this day how gentle he was when he laid me across the back seat of the car to drive me home. Now, this was back in the day before we needed seat belts. <laughs> and he, he laid me across the back seat of the car. And I remember how slowly and carefully he drove home. He drove really slowly and was careful about every turn in the road and every bump until he got me home and then carried me into the house. And when I used to do the school run and my kids were in the car, they used to say, why is this person in front going so slow? We're late for school. And I'd say, you do not know what is going on with that person in that car. And I tell them a story about how my father drove really slowly. And you just have to be very mindful that everybody's got their own thing going on. And just because they're driving slowly, they might have a sick child in the back of the car for all they know. They might have an old person in the car. Again, when my father was old, interestingly enough, when he was 80, he died just after he was 80, but he had cancer and it spread to his bones. So any journey was very difficult for him. And I remember going over to Ireland because he'd moved over there to live. And I hired a car, uh, the, a big car, so that it was easy for him to get into. And I remember he came out for a meal with the family. And I remember driving home after that meal out. And I remember driving oh my God, I'm going to cry. It's so sad. So slowly, I drove so carefully, my father over the bumps and round the corners because I knew that every bump in the road was very hard for him. It, it almost kills him. It was so sore. And although that's a sort of a tearful thing to explain, there's a real honour in being able to do that in return for him as he did it for me when I was little and suffering. And anybody who was following my car that night wouldn't have known that I was driving this very old sick man home. And so what am I saying here? Let me try and sum up. We don't know what's going on for other people, do we, in life? And so we have to keep looking at things from other people's perspective and not from our own, what we want making demands. Yeah, but there's also, you offer so beautiful because the return of the love, the way your father treated you as precious cargo, and then you got the opportunity to do the same for him. That way in which we're given the chance to return the love, the, the story becomes the circle. Yes. Because I, I've really come to believe that grief 
grief is part part of how we get in our way is that we imagine grief to be on a timeline. Even when we're wise about grief, we imagine grief to be on some timeline that doesn't really exist in real life because grief is it's recursive. It's a circle, isn't it? Yeah. So we're always grieving. And I think when we honor that, that we're in a different stage of grief with every loss and we revisit those stages and we deepen with our grief that we, that we begin to allow our grief to speak more. And we begin to, um, we begin to honor that these relationships matter. Your connection with your father matters deeply and the way you return the love to him. That's just such a stunning story. I hope you'll, have you written that one down in? No, it just came out just now. <laughs> I'd love to. I hadn't even thought about it before. It just came that's out that way. Uh, it's really, really lovely. It, it, um, to me, it's uh, a story that anyone listening to that story would be, would be given the opportunity to grow from it. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And you spoke a bit earlier when we first began chatting, Brian, about your spirit guide, Joanne. And you said... She told you about how she greets people when they die. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, Izzy. So Joanne introduced me to this woman, Izzy, this la- Latina woman with her jean jacket. And she's just, she's just got this really, um, you're really fun personality. And Izzy is in spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Izzy. Yeah, exactly. Izzy is the, the kind of spirit that works in the world of death. And the way she explains it to me is that, she, she said to me, I had a really difficult reading one time with the family. And I won't go into a lot of details because um, you know, I don't want to make sure that they're not able to be identified. But just to say that there, it was a murder kind of situation. And it was a very painful way in which somebody would, um, uh, you know, just a very, very painful story that this family was enduring. And after that, um, I'll sometimes go to Izzy to get guidance or just to just to be seen, I think, because sometimes I, sometimes I don't love my job. I think every medium could say that. I mean, we're not a victim of our work, but sometimes I don't love my work um, because we're invited into places that I feel like an interloper at times. I feel awkward being in some of these hard spaces that these families have to walk in. And um, I try to be very, very thoughtful and intentional when I'm in those spaces, but it impacts us, doesn't it? When, it, yeah. when someone is, um, when someone dies for murder, it's a very devastating thing. And Izzy said to me, she said, Brian, your soul never hits the ground. She said, I'm, I'll be there to catch you. Someone is there to catch the person that's dying. Someone is there to help them stand and feel their feet on the ground. And they're, when they become aware that they are the spirit again, when they become aware that they there's a part of us, she said, you know, there's a part of us that never dies. There's a part of us that can never be hurt or damaged or changed in any way. And I just love that intention. I love that idea. And so I, I think um, the way the way that Joanne, when Joanne introduced me to this woman, Izzy, you know, and again, as I mentioned, I'm, I'm not standing on any kind of, uh, I, I don't want to stand and say that this is true or what have you, but it's my truth. It's my belief for myself that's served me. And so I'll go to Izzy when I have complicated situations. And Izzy basically, how she explains it is that she gets the beautiful job and the beautiful task of receiving the person so that their feet never hit the ground. She's there to catch them. And I, that's just given me a great sense of peace. That's beautiful, isn't it, to know? Yeah. 
because I still think you know, there's the human mind is fascinating, isn't it? The human mind will say, well, my loved one needs to be guided after they die. And my, you know, all these, and I'm, and I'm, and I, I can't, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not the authority, but I, that just doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but I, but I'm, doesn't mean I'm right about that either. I think mediumship, the, it's a miracle, isn't it? For, it changes how we live, doesn't it, Anne? Knowing that we live on, knowing that our life has meaning and that it, it wasn't all about becoming um, successful in the traditional sense that it was actually about softening our instrument. It was actually about learning how to be present to another's suffering, about, a find, about how to find equanimity with every soul we encounter. You know, it's an interesting thing to recognize that our life has meaning and that we continue on, that actually we're borrowing. I feel like sometimes I, I kind of imagine that I'm borrowing the shoes of this person named Brian and that I'm this character, this person for this lifetime. And uh, some people love that character. Some people hate that character. Some people not care about that character. But in that life, I have a responsibility to do the very best I can to take the risk to live the life as this person and to allow that life to unfold, to let that story be what it's meant to be and to have the courage to allow the story to advance. Even when I'm scared or even when I'm frightened, I can always go back to trusting that I'm more than my name. I'm more than my lifetime. I'm more than my accomplishment. You know, it's really, I think as mediums, we're really very blessed in that way because it's proven to us in a way that's um, unquestionable. Mediumship makes makes the the life after this life unquestionable. Yeah, it really does. And I think as an actress myself, um, in my, my, my history going back, as you know, I was a performer and um, never really hit my stride with it. it, was never really got to where I really would have loved to have been. And I used to really be so upset about that because I know I've been given the talent and the gifts to and had the had I known the right people um, still if I still knew the right people doors might open and things might happen Um, but I'm also okay with that not happening now because I see that as a very one lifetime view point and I think I said it already in earlier in the interview you know I'm quite happy to go over to the spirit world and carry on um, with those same gifts and exploring them over there, or perhaps in the next lifetime or the next lifetime, that's fine, fine by me. And it has redefined because that is my belief. It's redefined how I live now, so I don't have to go and get upset or depressed or sad. I now live a much more joyous existence, and my theatre became the interior of the car when I drove my kids to school. I would put on funny voices. I would entertain them. It didn't matter if it wasn't to an audience of, you know, several hundred in a theatre. That same feeling of entertaining in the car to two people who are laughing their heads off, that's that was great. That was enough. So I think I love can- that, Anne. Because I think there's a there's a consequence for having a life with two hundred people in a theater staring at you. Mm. That there's a consequence for that, that I don't think we honor. And I think we, a lot of us that are, you know, kind of into the acting realm and into mediumship and what have you, we think we're extroverts, but I actually think we're introverts. Mm. I've never appeared as an extrovert on any assessment I've ever done. I'm always an introvert. So I think there's, there's a way in which mediumship would probably not have happened if you were living that extroverted life 
and the world outside of you was telling you whether or not you were valuable. And the reviews in the newspaper were deciding if your performance was good enough or not good enough. You know, there's a consequence for that. I think that uh, that I've come to really uh, recognize. Isn't do you do you believe that? Is that- I absolutely agree with you. And go, and taking that again to my experience where I <laughs> became an outlaw and lived in the woods because my family um, decided that they wanted to disown me for various misdemeanors in my life. If that hadn't happened, that was a real blessing for me. Didn't feel it at the time, I can assure you, but it was a real blessing because through that, I had a whole load of various different experiences that made me so empathic to other people and made me look at other people's stories so much more, which I would not have, I would not have had the ability to look at life in such depth if that suffering hadn't happened to me. And I think in the suffering is where we get the depth of our spirituality and possibly you feel the same with the experiences that you've gone through. Well, it's so beautiful. And, you know, my, the thing I think about a lot is, and the joke I make with friends a lot is who would you rather sit next to you on a plane, a perfect person or someone with a story? Yeah. And you can only have a story if you earn it. I know. And that means taking the risk to not do what people want you to do. That's it. And, and it may be messy and it is messy by the way. And it's not always pretty. And, um, but I also love that too. I love the grit of that. Like there's a story in the book that I'm putting out and it's, it's a wild story, but it's a, you're in the Gravitron. Do you know the Gravitron ride that goes around and around and around? What, where you stick to the sides? No. Yes, you stick to the sides. You got oh, okay. it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So okay. I don't know if they what they call that in Europe. Um, I'm just trying to be. No, no. It spins around in a circle, creates yes. a vortex, and you all go when you get stuck yes, to the side of the cylinder. Drop the floor, and it's <laughs> yeah. just like the whole thing. And they played anyway. So that's what the story's about. It's about when I was with my friends and we huffed gasoline because who doesn't huff gasoline? Because that's fun. You know why not? But it just kind of gives you an insight into how crazy my life was at that time at the age of 14 or 15. And we were in this ride, the Gravitron, and going around and around. And this guy looked like Ronald McDonald. I mean, the, the guy, the ride operator, red hair, you know, acne, glasses. And he was just like this angry villain. And he, he was kind of a bully kind of, kind of guy. I'm sure he'd been bullied. I'm sure that's why he was that way. But, but he uh, you know, was screaming out on the announcer thing. He said, um, I'm not going to stop the ride until, until you admit, until those of you uh, admit that you're fags. Raise your hands. And, you know, of course, we're all sticking to the wall. So raising our hands would be impossible. So it was just like him. <laughs> being the, Well, I got, I was feeling a little nauseous and I lost it. I actually vomited. And then what happens in a vortex like that, if you vomit, everyone else does too, because it's really disgusting. <laughs> so that's the first story in the book. So I realized that <laughs> the life I've lived, like, it's not going to sound like the lovely, like, um, after school special or touch by an angel. Like, that's not my story. Mine's more like the messy person's version of how to become a spiritual person by like vomiting on one another in a Gravitron. Because there was like a moment where I could, I was like, when I revisited that story, there was just a moment where I was thinking, of course, I was on a Gravitron vomiting on everyone and everyone was vomiting on me. And of course, that makes sense because we're all in it together, aren't we? Yes. I love the image. I love the idea that we're all we're all in this together, even when we think we aren't. And the pandemic is a great lesson in that, isn't it? That we're, that we, what we do on a daily basis impacts our neighbor. 
That's so interesting because in my mind, I get this picture that used to be pinned up in our church hall when I was a kid, which was of God. It was a black and white sketch and it was God with a big beard and he had two big knitting needles and he was making this knitted fabric of knitted item and it was people's faces he was knitting all these different people and they were all together in this knitted they were the stitches in the fabric of the community that he was knitting and how interesting I should have that vision when I said my mother's description of me was how she felt that she'd knitted this beautiful item and someone had come along and undone all the stitches but actually if you look at it differently if I look at it in a different way actually Part of my having that experience was to bring a community of people together, was to knit people together and to understand how important community is and how we impact each other's lives. It's fascinating, isn't it? Well, if you take away any of the ways in which you've been hurt, you're no longer you. Yeah. True. And um, you know, I think also we don't talk enough about this, but if we take away the ways in which we've hurt others, you know, we're often more comfortable talking about the ways in which the world has hurt us. Um, but it's also wise, I think, and, and true to spend time talking about the ways in which we've hurt others um, because we're imperfect, aren't we? Yes. Um, and we're going to fail at loving all the time and giving ourselves permission to find, to tell that truth and tell the truth of that, um, tell the story that reminds us that, like you said, we're, we're, it's a constant process. Just that image is so powerful. That idea of knitting, mm. um, that we're knitting the fabric of our experiences into this new blanket of of our soul, like this new version of who we are. Yes, that's such a powerful image you have, Anne. I yeah. think that's gorgeous. I'm going to steal it and say it's mine now forever. You can have it. <laughs> it's yours. No, I'm totally, I'm totally, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally done with you. Because um, I, I, I would never. I've never picked up knitting needles in my entire life. But my husband does. He when he gets stressed out, he, I can always tell he's stressed out because he'll pull out the knitting, and it'll be on the side <laughs> of him, and he'll be knitting, and I'm like. You doing okay, dear? Is everything working out for you? Yeah. <laughs> Do they clack really loudly, the knitting needles? Click, 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 depending like, on how cross he is. <laughs> exactly. Yes. I'm like, you're angry at that scarf. Oh my God, no. So anyway. You are oh. just lovely. This was so much fun to spend some Wasn't time it with. lovely? Thank you, Brian. Just yeah. chewing yeah. the fat, talking about mediumship, seeing where we're both at at the moment. It was a really lovely chit chat. I've really enjoyed it. Me too. I'd love to uh, chat with you again, actually. This was mm. really fun. Yeah, let's chat again. I'd love to. I'm doing a, a podcast in the next couple of months on death, and okay. I'd love to have you come and be a guest on it. It's, um, oh, I'd love to. We'll talk about that later. But um, sure. but you were just a gift, and I, and I can't thank you enough for um, making some time for us to have this conversation. It really was, uh, was really lovely for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was beautiful talking to you, Brian. I hope you have enjoyed this episode with my wonderful and truly compassionate friend and very talented fellow psychic medium, Brian Bowles. All resources for this episode, including a full transcript and, importantly, how to reach Brian, are over on my website under podcasts. So do head over there and you can pick everything up on the show notes, www.antheato.com, A-N-N-T-H-E-A-T-O.com. Have a little explore while you are over there and take a look at my upcoming courses and audio meditations that are available. You might find something you love. To carry on the conversation with Brian or any of my guests, please do head over to the Psychic Matters podcast group 
Facebook page and join in the discussions. You will be very warmly welcomed. For now, I would like to wish all of you a very peaceful couple of weeks until we meet again. And remember that you are a spirit being having a human experience. And as such, try to keep turning time and again to the stillness within yourself. For that is where you will find answers. And it's where you will find peace in a world turned upside down. My name is Anne Teato, and thank you for listening to Psychic Matters. Mm-hmm.